One moment, you're lying there on a table. You might have your legs up in stirrups. You're sweating. You feel awful. The pain is huge. Your stomach is out here. And you can see it wriggling around as you're looking at it. And you're thinking, help, help, get this over. And then a few pushes, perhaps. And out slithers this blood-covered thing. And your stomach goes from being out here to kind of maybe being a bit sort of more out here. It's the quickest diet you ever go on in your whole life. And it is birth. You have been preparing for it for nine months at least, maybe a lot longer than that. And you are keen and you are excited and you want this to happen, but there are so many different emotions going on at the same time. And then the bit that I just think is one of the most uncaring things in the world happens. You cannot look any worse because you've been going for this process for a long time. This baby has been really comfortable. He has not wanted to be born, it seems. And so you look like death warmed up. Your hair is wet. You've been, you might have been crying. You are in a huge state. And then your partner, who you love more than anybody else in the world at that point, wants to take a photograph. <laughs> and it's a photograph if you have, well, if you're like me, you just never show it to a single soul. It's the first photograph of your new baby, but it's got you on it, and you look awful, and you don't want anybody else to see you looking like that, so you keep it at the back of the album, or maybe not at all, it never sees the light of day, but after all of that, after all of that has happened, the room clears, you're given your baby and you look down at the face and they might actually be the ugliest little critter anybody else has ever seen but to you you look down and it's just joy it is pure joy it's also terror it's also wonder but you look and you think He's mine, mine, he is mine. There is just nothing like it. But on the other hand, it is one of the most common experiences in the world. More than half of us 
who are sitting here today have been in that position. Another third of us who are sitting here today, we might not have been the person lying on the table, but we've been the person watching as all of this has gone on. For some of us, we only have that joy through other people. We share in their delight, and that's great as well. Childbirth is a natural and a common experience. And having children is also common. That's part of what we are all part of. We have all been children. We all know children. And in the Bible, there are several stories about children that help us to understand something more about how we should be together. We are going to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at Jesus's interaction with children, in particular in Mark's Gospel. Although there's one tiny little bit in Matthew's Gospel that I didn't want us to miss, so I've put that one in as well. And we're going to start off with the reading that Claire did for us, looking at Jesus's attitude to children as they were brought to him. We're going to need our Bibles for this talk, so if you can get your Bibles open onto page 1014, and we'll be flicking over a few little stories throughout Mark's Gospel as we follow our thoughts today. The first thing that happens in this snapshot that we have of Jesus' life is that people are bringing these little children to him so that he can touch them. Touch for small children is a really important thing. This week, I have been doing some supply work in a reception class. Almost all of the children, not quite all, but almost all of the children in that reception class want you to touch them at some point. Lots of the little girls, they come up to you and they want to hold your hand. Some of the little boys want to hit you very hard. (laughs) It's all about touch though. Something about touching somebody gives security. Something about touching somebody gives us a sense of togetherness. Yes, they're not really that big or that different from me. We are together. And just people would often bring their children to Jesus so that he could touch them. And the disciples thought this was a bit of a waste of time, to be honest. They weren't so good at the political spin that we see nowadays where politicians are encouraged to touch children. No, for them, was this important? Did Jesus really need to be seen, to be in the people? He was tired already. Couldn't he just rest? But Jesus said no. He wanted to touch them. He wanted to teach adults lessons through the children. He wanted to talk about how innocent perhaps a child is or how gentle they are. I don't know exactly what was in his mind for all of it, but certainly there is a point here where he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, 
for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. There is that sense of innocence in a child, that sense that says, I might not understand everything about it, but because you've said it's true, I am going to take it at face value. I'm going to accept what you say because I love you and I am going to go on with you. I can't work it all out for myself, but I trust because I am a child. And then Jesus blesses the children. He touches them, he puts his hands on them, and he blesses them. And I get the feeling that he actually enjoys it because he is demonstrating an attitude towards these children that is an attitude that we need to show too not just to our children. It's kind of easy, isn't it, to be gooey and loving over a little baby that's been born. But what about when that child becomes a stroppy adolescent? Are we still meant together to have that attitude of kindness, that attitude of wanting to bless them? I think it is. I think it's something that we have to grow with. You know, before I had any children of my own, I actually thought children were really frightening. In fact, I might still think that of other people's children. But when you have children, you learn so much. It's not just the children who are in the learning process. You learn all the time. You start with that baby stage and you learn about it, but children don't stay there, they grow up. And I am so pleased that I didn't just get given a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old. Because what on earth do you do with them? How do you keep them going all day? And when I first started, teaching in Sunday school when I was about 16 years old, it was the hardest thing that anybody had asked me to do. I was given a group of 10 six-year-olds and I had to entertain them for a whole 20 minutes. <laughs> that was so long. What do you do? How do you interact with them? What's your attitude supposed to be like to them? But when it's your own children, you've grown up with them or they've grown up with you and you learn. And as a church family together, we learn how to relate to the children that we have the privilege of seeing grown up, grow up before us. We can't treat them all like we treat babies, but we can show kindness and love and encouragement towards them. And that's all important. And then we get to action. If that's what our attitudes are supposed to be, what are our actions supposed to be like? There's three very quick stories. We're not going to read them all, but you might like to turn to them as we are going through this together. And the first one is back in... 
I've lost where it is because I didn't write it down. This, oh, chapter five, it's on there. <laughs> Thank you very much. 1007. I should have the same Bible here as you have got, and then I would be in the right place. It's a big story. It's got two different people in it. It's really got a dead girl, Jairus' daughter, and it's got a sick woman. We're not going to look at the sick woman at all, but we are going to think very briefly about Jairus' daughter. What happens in this story is that you've got this man called Jairus. He's got a daughter who's ill, and he asks Jesus if Jesus will come and do something for his daughter. That's in verse 23 of that chapter. He asks Jesus, and Jesus says, yes, I will come. It just says in 24, so Jesus went with him. In verse 36, things have taken a bit of a turn for the worse. Because when Jesus is on his way, Somebody comes out and says, why bother the teacher anymore? Your daughter is dead. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. In this story, it's a story about how Jesus uses a girl in order to teach a father something about believing in him. Jairus had belief. Jairus trusted that Jesus could do something about it. But others in this story, they just laughed at him, it says in verse 40. They couldn't quite accept or believe or trust that Jesus could do anything. But in verse 41, Jesus does something great. He reaches out, he picks up the girl, he takes her by the hand and says, get up. And immediately the girl stood up. She's about 12 years old. And Jesus, in his actions towards her, showed tenderness and care. In his actions towards the father, he allayed the father's fears. He wanted to do something in that particular situation. For the next one, the Syrophoenician woman, if you just turn over a page uh, to 1010, you should be able to find that. This time, something completely different. The action here is action that takes place in a conversation between these two people. The lady wants her daughter to be cured of something inside her, an evil spirit it talks about living in her. Jesus doesn't have any interaction with the girl in this story at all. But he does speak and say that she will be healed. He doesn't even need to be in the same proximity as the child in order to respond to the determination that is shown by her mother and in order to actually help that child and to restore her completely to health. It's a different kind of action altogether. And then the healing of the boy with the evil spirit. That's back in Mark chapter 9. In this one, 
it's a bit of a longer story. It shows how Jesus actually explores what the problem is. He asks the father some questions. It's again a different level of interaction. And Jesus says, well, believe in me and I will do something about what is happening with your child, your son who has this evil spirit within him. And then Jesus talks directly to the evil spirit that is within that child, then reaches out to the boy and the evil spirit disappears. The boy is healed and restored. Three very different little stories. What do they teach us about the actions that Jesus has towards these children that he is involved with in these stories. Well, Jesus must have seen hundreds and hundreds of different children in his time, and he didn't react to all of them in the same way. Even in these stories, that's true. Even in a reception class of 18 children, I could tell that I was not reacting to them all this week in exactly the same way. Because it is not possible. There are some children who immediately catch your eye for one reason or another. It's not always the really, really good ones. Sometimes it's the quite mischievous or stroppy ones. But fortunately, all teachers are made different and there will always be, I hope, some teachers who like the really naughty little urchins. But children are so honest in their response to you too because there was one little urchin this week. His name was Edward. And we were having a music lesson and Edward would not stop banging the drum that I had given him. And because I needed to keep order, I took the drum away. And Edward sulked. And it was kind of towards the end of the day. And we kind of got through to the end. And Edward went home, a very relieved little boy, that the day with this awful teacher was over. But the next day came. And I went into class and Edward arrived with his mum and all of the other mums because these are all very new little children and they all walked in and as Edward saw me he took one look and he said oh no <laughs> and I found myself explaining my actions why I'd taken the drum away, what I had done to try and cheer him up at the end. And I thought, whoa, whoa, hang on a minute. Actually, people see an awful lot in the way we respond to each other and in the way that we respond to children. People saw a lot in Jesus because of his actions with the children in these stories. 
it wasn't just the immediate action that had the effect, whether or not he did touch these individuals or not, whether or not he just spoke and something happened, whether or not he asked for a faith response. I was asking this little boy and his mum to trust me that I was going to be okay with him for the rest of the day, that he wasn't going to have a miserable day. Unfortunately, he didn't. I was very relieved about that. But it all works together. Our actions demonstrate so much about who we are, what our beliefs are, and how we should show those and ourselves to everyone around us. Jesus, when he did these actions, some of them, I'm sure, were consciously thought about. As he reached out his hand, it was a conscious decision. As he spoke to one mother in argument about whether her child should be healed or not, it was a conscious decision. But so often, our actions are not that kind of action. And yet people see them anyway. However we act, whether we do it with a smile on our face or whether we do it with meanness inside, people see the way that we act towards each other and towards the children. And people believe what we say based on the way that we respond. Our actions are important. And lastly, the idea of advice. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. Don't cause our children to sin. We are responsible to care for all of our children, whether they're ours personally, or whether they're part of the church family, or whether they're part of a school that we happen to be in on any day of the week. We are responsible to care. We are responsible to respond to the fears that they have, to the determination that they express. We are responsible to explore their problems, to talk with them, to be involved and to comfort. We are responsible to encourage them in their belief. All those things we've seen in Jesus in his actions with people. But we have to be so careful that our response to them does not encourage our children to turn their backs on God altogether. And we can do that when we don't pray for them. We can do that when we don't treat each other with the respect that we deserve. It seems here to be a really big thing, something of real importance. If we cause these little ones who believe in God to sin, it would be better if we had this millstone tied around our neck. How awful that is. There are consequences to the way that we relate. 
There are consequences in family life, aren't there? Sometimes we cannot be in any way responsible for the consequences that we see. We might do absolutely everything we can to demonstrate love and care for our children. And yet our children still turn their backs on God. They still choose to walk away. That comes in with the next bit of advice that Jesus gives us. Yes, we have to do things as well as we can. Yes, we are responsible for the way that we treat them. But, and this is why I wanted the bit from Matthew in here, we also have to keep a right perspective on family life going all along. Because ultimately, everybody has to make their own choice for God or against him. We are responsible that we act well towards each other. We are responsible that our attitude is one of love and care towards each other. But ultimately, this is a verse that is all about a comparison in our relationships. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, says Jesus of himself. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus wants us first to be committed to him. Yes, he wants us to have all these other right relationships and to work in these particular ways. But ultimately, we have to always say that any other relationship we have, no matter how precious that relationship is, it is not entirely on a par with the relationship that we have with God. And in some ways, that is a really, really helpful thing for us to think about and to have in our hearts. Because on those days when family life is not going very well, it would be so easy, wouldn't it, for us to say, well, if I respond like that, if I can only respond like that to this child I've given birth to, what hope do I have for a God who says he loves me? But it is so much bigger than that. Because our earthly relationships are just that. They will come to an end. That's just how it is. But our relationship with God will not come to an end. And therefore, that's the relationship that we have to work on beyond every human relationship beyond every other thing that every other person that we love well we have to love Jesus more and if they make a choice not to love Jesus then that is not ultimately our fault we are only responsible in the end for our own decision do we love Jesus? Do we love him more than we love the other precious people that he has given to us? There are some days 
when I can hand on heart say, yes, I do. They're the days when I've just been yelling, or miserable, or the days when family life has just, oh, it's been hard work. On those days, yes, I love Jesus more than I love Dave, or Sam, or Tom, or Mam, or Dad, or my brother Mark, or my Auntie June, or my Uncle Ken, or anybody else I can think of, because on those days, people are just hard work. But on other days, Christmas morning, we've just laid in our bed, we've been opening our stockings together, the boys have been so excited about what they've got, and the joy on their faces is fantastic, and you think, could heaven be better than this? There are moments in our life when we think, no, it can't. And I think God gives us those moments to keep us awake, to keep us striving towards the best.